Hey everyone, I'm Mo, and I'm the CEO and founder of Product Faculty. Today on the CPO Mastery Podcast, we're excited to have Shashir Mahotra, who is the CEO of Coda. Shashir was an early employee at YouTube where he ran the product design and engineering organizations while YouTube was going through a period of hyper growth. At YouTube, Shashir set an audacious goal of hitting 1 billion hours of watch time per day, which at that time was two times the total bits on the entire internet. In four years, YouTube was able to achieve that goal. Every metric was breaking records regularly. YouTube's user base and revenue scaled from millions to billions and the team scaled up quickly. A key part of YouTube's success to reach over a billion users was the tools, processes, and strong documentation that involved and aligned the entire company to achieve this phenomenal growth. Let's dig in and learn more from Shashir. I would love to learn about your background and why you started Coda. So background first, I, uh, as you mentioned, thank you for the very nice introduction. I am currently the founder and CEO of Coda. Before this, I spent six years at Google, uh, running most of that time running the YouTube products. Before that, I spent about six years at Microsoft, worked on Windows, Office, and SQL Server. Started my first company before that called Centrata, and that was started out of university. I grew up in mostly in Virginia, but uh, we sort of moved around a bunch. My father's a professor. Starting Coda, people that know me well would say that Coda didn't start in 2014. It actually started 20 years earlier. It's an idea I've been in some sense working on uh, in different ways for almost two decades. First of all, Coda is a new type of document. It's a, most of our users would describe it as an all-in-one document. It blends the best parts of documents, spreadsheets, presentations, and applications into one new surface. The dedicated members of our community will use a phrase uh, that we like to call our thesis statement is that we believe anyone can make docs as powerful as apps. And that's sort of what our rallying cry is as a company. The observations behind Coda and the, the reasons we started it mostly come out of two things. One is that we believe that the world runs on docs, not apps. And if you go ask any team or person how they operate, they'll start rattling off all the different packaged applications they use for all sorts of different uh, tasks. But if you actually watch them all day long, they're in documents, spreadsheets, and presentations all day long. And then the second observation is those tools haven't fundamentally changed since the 1970s. The running joke at the company is if Austin Powers popped out of his freezing chamber, he wouldn't know what clothes to wear or what music to listen to, but he would absolutely know how to work a document, a spreadsheet, and a presentation. Because the core metaphors for those tools were set back in the 1970s with WordStar, Harvard Graphics, and Viscount. So if you take those two observations and stick them together, say the world runs on docs, not apps, and those tools haven't changed in 50 years, that seemed like a really important opportunity for change. So we decided to start with a brand new doc, start from scratch and see what we would build for today's modality. And that's turning to Coda. That's awesome. And I love using uh, Coda on, for my planning and everything. So really do understand that thesis. So mm-hmm. when you think about hyperscaling companies and those that become hyperscaling, you know, one of the defining characteristics of those is setting big goals. And that's how you would motivate people. And One of the goals that you said at YouTube was 1 billion hours of watch time per day. Could you chat behind the context of that goal and how did you evangelize that? Yeah, so so maybe it's worth starting with the the time period. I have an old friend, an old boss actually, who uses this analogy a lot that every business goes through three phases. First, you're a joke, then you're a threat, then you're obvious. So when you're a joke, nobody believes in you, then you become a threat and everybody is sort of, 
reacting to you and, and adjusting to your plans and then you become obvious and people just assume what you're doing is going to work. And uh, interestingly, at that point, you can only do wrong. The phases that, that businesses naturally go through. You know, when I got to YouTube in 2008, it was clearly at that joke phase. And the most of the world had decided that this was Google's first big mistake. You know, we had a string of wonderful acquisitions. The teams that produced Android and Google Docs, Google Maps, so on, were all, were all acquisitions. And then we had this, you know, $1.6 billion purchase for YouTube, and it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere. And, you know, it was uh, known for grainy videos. It was known for being a fairly bad business, losing hundreds of millions and eventually billions of dollars a year. It was known for drawing huge lawsuits. And, and we had a big one pending with Viacom at the time. And over the course of the next two, three years, we sort of righted that ship. We figured out how to improve the quality of content delivery, the user experience. We figured out how to make the monetization model work and started delivering not only positive returns to Google, but positive returns to our creators. And everything was going quite well. But if you get to 2011, we sort of turned this around and, and we'd kind of gone through that joke threat phase, but we were feeling lost. And... There were a lot of indicators of that. The ideas that people were working on weren't as big. And you could just see it in the way that people propose things. When you're at that joke phase and nobody believes in you, then, then you act differently. It was very difficult to ship changes. We would regularly have people produce a change, then come to our reviews, and then we would argue over the, the hundreds of metrics that we could use for deciding whether this goes out. Well, this one makes views go up, makes watch time goes down, makes revenue go sideways, revenue per creator goes up, the revenue per uh, per view goes down or whatever it might be. It's very hard to make decisions. And as we thought about all of those different indicators, we decided it was time to set a larger goal and with some broader context. We had a leadership offsite that we would do in Los Angeles where we bring all the about 150 or so of our top leaders we bring into, into a conference. We decided that we would use a forcing function to describe not only the next you know, three, four months of goals, but actually something that was a longer arc of where, where are we headed. And as we were having the discussion, there were two stories told in, in my, my core leadership group. One was about Coca-Cola. And I'm not totally sure it's accurate, but it might be folklore. Uh, but the way the story is told is that apparently there was this board meeting at Coca-Cola and, and one of the board members got frustrated and said, you know, how many of these meetings are we going to have where, you know, we're 48% share versus Pepsi, sometimes we're 52%, you know, it's just a game dancing back and forth in the, the brown sugar water market. Another person said, well, why don't we think about it differently? Why don't we start thinking about it with a slightly larger frame? And they framed it as, why don't we think about our success as percentage of stomach? And the idea was, you know, people consume lots of things. Why don't we increase the percentage of those that come from our company? And that led to a broad strategy. They ended up, you know, buying a set of, you know, bottled water manufacturers and started making other drinks and sort of expanded uh, more broadly and changed the definition of, of what they were going after. You know, similarly, where we were at with, with YouTube at the time, you know, it felt like we, we were done. All the other properties that had user uploaded video, None of them had grown anywhere near as fast as YouTube had. We sort of owned the market for it. It kind of felt like we were already the king of that mountain. And so this analogy really stuck with us. Like, is this it? Are we at the top of this? And so that was one analogy that we thought a lot about. The second one was one of our product leaders uh, told the story about Ben Hunt Davis and the British 2000 Olympic rowing team. That story, he's written a book about it. And the, the story is that the Brits were determined to do better in this Olympics than they had in the past. Rowing is a pride sport for, for the Brits. 
And they decided as a team that they would use one question to make every decision. Will it make the boat go faster? Every decision, you know, who should be on the team? Well, will it make the boat go faster? Who should sit in the front? Will it make the boat go faster? Where should we go for dinner? All of it was, will it make the boat go faster? And it was a very inspiring story because of, you know, it, for us, it felt like we weren't totally sure which market we were in and we weren't totally sure what our unifying way to make decisions or unifying rubric was. So we decided on a, on a new goal. We called it our billion hour goal. And, you know, when we rolled this out in 2012, I get up in front of this, this leadership group in Los Angeles and I start walking through, this is going to be our new goal. We're going to get to a billion hours a day of viewership by uh, the end of 2016. So it is a four-year goal. First off, I got blank stares. The, the, nobody understood what that meant. You know, the, the YouTube rallying cry for years had been views. You, you might remember, you used to say it on the website, kind of like McDonald's had hamburgers served, YouTube had videos watched. And so people understood what that meant. Billion views a day, two billion views a day. What's a billion hours? What does that feel like? And so I started putting it into context and said, well, look, at the time we were doing about 100 million hours a day of viewership. And if you compare that to some other properties, Google, uh, google.com was also about 100 million hours a day. Like we were almost even with them, but it's kind of a dumb metric for Google because the whole point of Google is get on and get off the property. Email was at around 20 million hours a day. I think it was 17 or so. Uh, Google Maps was fairly similar to that. Fairly large properties, but we were already much bigger than those. Yeah. The by far the largest property on the internet at the time was Facebook, and Facebook was at about 200 million hours a day. But the whole point of the story was that at the time, television as a as a whole across the world uh, was about five and a half billion hours per day. So to go from 100 million hours to a billion hours, we would be by far the largest internet property, but we would still only be 20 percent of the time people spend watching television. And that was kind of our version of the, the sort of Coke analogy was just illustrating people, this is where our ambition sits. We're in that joke thread obvious curve. We're way early. You know, from that perspective, we're definitely still at joke and kind of reset us back to that period. Then the other reason people had sort of open stairs that, okay, so now they understand why, why that goal is ambitious. They didn't understand how it applied to them. And so this was the make the boat go faster part. And so I had to describe why does this goal translate for every team. And so, you know, it had some obvious impact for the team that drove a lot of our user-facing viewer behaviors. You could sort of translate for creators. Uh, but I went through every team and sort of described how it impacts them. So for example, the infrastructure team, the networking team, you know, at the time, about 20% of all the bits on the internet came to YouTube servers. And so that, that was sort of our level prominence on the internet. And some quick projections and quick math said that if we hit this goal, we get to a billion hours a day of viewership, then we would be streaming more bits than the entire internet of today times two. And so, hey, networking team, you not only have to make us more efficient, you have to grow the entire internet. And that, that was a very motivating call. for. And so we went team by team by team and went through that. And we sort of achieved both of these, these goals of, of setting up what market we were in, the percentage of stomach, and aligning a metric. And it worked. Uh, the team achieved the goal in, in 2016. So it's worth noting also that, you know, as I rolled out the goal, the next person I had come up was my head of data science guy named Matt Hudson, actually runs my go-to-market team here at Coda now. And Matt came up and he described all the reasons why this is stupid, she is crazy, it's never going to work. And, you know, all the law of large numbers says you get from 100 million hours to a billion hours, he said we'd be lucky to cross 400. And it'd be, it'd be amazing if we quadrupled in four years. To go 10x was going to be very, very unlikely. 
but it happened. The team did it and we, we got past that. But probably more importantly, it changed the behavior of the company. It aligned the team. The ideas got bigger. Our path to making decisions got clearer. It attracted people. You know, we would, we would have YouTube that went from being this kind of odd property that Google had purchased that was somehow kind of squirreling its way to a profit to all of a sudden, you know, people would walk around Google and say, oh, did you hear what the YouTube folks are up to? They've got this crazy billion hour thing going on. I wonder what that's, how that's going. And it's sort of pulling in the right energy, not only within the team, but from, from around the company as well. I mean, there's lots of learnings from, from that period. I mean, I think lots of positive learnings of, you know, clarifying your market, picking a unifying metric. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that we struggled with and and has played out a lot since then is finding balance. And one of the one of the debates that we would have a lot is billion hours a day. That seems like a really great rallying cry. You know, one important question is that actually a good thing to do? And is it a good thing for people to watch a billion hours a day of uh, video? And we could talk more about that if you like. But we we call that debate the nutritious versus delicious debate. And we ended up spending a lot of time on what are the compensating metrics for your rallying metric and. and yeah, we can talk more about that if you like. But that's the yeah. Let's, that's let's what talk about been. that. It's it's a big debate, right? Like you know, now you see other products like TikTok. Is it really good for us? How did YouTube think about that? I think it's a it's a struggle. And and first off, when you look at properties in totality, especially large properties like YouTube, you'll find this mixture of of things. You know, when we have this nutritious versus delicious debate. At the time, by the way, the, just as in context, this is 2012, when we when we said nutritious versus delicious, we were mostly worried about value of time spent. You know, these days, the, there's a lot of other impacts that people are worried about, about misinformation or about, about the roles these platforms have in politics or public policy. But at the time, when we said nutritious versus delicious, that that's what we were concerned about was, was yeah. you know, is this a good use of time? And we have, you know, a number of parents, including myself in the group, and many of us would report back that, well, it's great. We're trying to achieve that goal. Just to let you know, you know, we severely restrict the amount of time our kids spend on YouTube. And, you know, how can it be the case that, you know, parents don't necessarily think it's a good thing, but uh, others do. So first of all, there was some balance in that, you know, it was clear that, for every story of a parent that said that, there was also a story of a parent or an adult so on, who said that uh, you know YouTube changed their life. I mean, there's the almost everything you want to learn about is on on YouTube. Khan Academy was super popular. My alma mater, MIT, had put their entire curriculum uh, online, and that was getting millions of views as well. And so, so it's clear that it can be very nutritious in in many classical definitions of nutrition. But it was also clear that at times it, it wouldn't be. And there, there was things that could happen on the platform that perhaps we weren't as, as proud of. And we, we did a few different things. I, mean, I give a lot of credit to uh, a guy named Hunter Walk. Hunter actually used to run product at YouTube in the early days. He had taken some time off and then he came back and he ran a, an effort called YouTube for Good. And he pushed very hard on this nutritious versus delicious framing of how to, how to think about balance. One of the things he suggested and we, we implemented was uh, this idea of a nutrition score. And so what we did, and you know, we implemented in this kind of interesting way, we ran a, an always-on survey. So you know, on YouTube, one of, the, one of the key monetization models is this uh, ad we call the TrueView ads. It's a skippable ad, so you see a skip button on the, on the bottom, of, uh, bottom right corner of the ad. That was one of our sort of main innovations that sort of broke through on, on monetization. We made a new format of that that was a survey format. And basically what would happen, and you'll still see these on YouTube, where it would come up with, a, the instead of an ad, it would ask you a question. The question we set was, for this particular one, was which is a more valuable use of your time? Watching an hour of television, watching an hour of YouTube, 
reading a book or going to the gym. And the goal wasn't necessarily to sort of win that survey. It was very hard to win that survey. Yeah. The yeah, goal I'm was sticking. to be clear, there were people that answered YouTube. I mean, that that's a, you know, but if you if you were doing your entire education on YouTube, you probably answered YouTube. If that's how you were learning a new language, it's probably how you answered YouTube. It was just the way you kept a connection with your homeland as an immigrant, like that, that you probably you probably watching YouTube. But it was hard, hard question for us. But the main thing it did was it gave us something to train on. So it meant that when we rolled things out, we now had a balancing metric. So we could say this push watch time forward, you know, will make the boat go faster. And we could judge that. We could also look at our compensating metric and say, well, what did it do to our nutrition score? And in that experiment, did the nutrition score go up or go down? The absolute number didn't matter that much. What really mattered was, did it go up or did it go down? And now you could start to do trade-off discussions. Is it worth, you know, heading this way, knowing that it's going to do this to our, our compensating metric? So that, that, that was one of the techniques we used. It was a, it was a common debate then. I'm not at all jealous of the, the current team running YouTube because I think the, I think the levels of concern on this are are significantly higher today, and they have a they have a set of new metrics to to achieve uh, achieve similar things on what they consider high quality watch time versus not. I think whenever you set a metric like this, you have to think about what incentive might this create for our team, for our ecosystem, for our community that we don't like, and then you have to compensate for it. And I think that's always the case. Real metrics, yeah, mm-hmm. that's 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 great. Sure, sure. I love reading your planning documents. You know, it's super detailed. I think it's fantastic for product leaders to see that. And on top of that, when I was listening to your story and reading what you've written about planning, you said that, hey, you know, every six months you spent three whole weeks planning. Now, when you hear about being agile and you hear about test and learn fast, that gives you the impression of just trying things out very quickly. And when I looked at the details of your document and spending three whole weeks planning stuff out intensely, that seems like the opposite of Agile. So can you talk about that and share your the context behind that? I think it depends on your perspective. I mean, where we came from, most of Google spent three months planning for six months. It was a, an intensely shortened period, actually, to, to be able to do it. But maybe I'll back up and give some context on that document as well. The document is called Rituals for Hypergrowth and Inside Look at How YouTube Scaled. And originally, you know, I had written a sort of private version of this and didn't publish it because I wasn't actually that sure it was that interesting to anybody. And it was, uh, you know, I got a lot of pressure from one of my close friends, Daniel Ack. He's the founder of Spotify. And he pushed me really hard on you should share this with a with a broader group. And actually, this write-up started as an email to him. He actually started with an innocuous question. He said, how do you run staff meetings at YouTube? And that ballooned and ballooned. And, well, I can't really tell you about that if I, unless I tell you about the weekly cadence. I can't tell you about that unless I tell you about the broader cadence. And so then that turned into this, this document. And you know, it turns out that many of the things we did were actually more unique than we we realized at the time. And, and you know, we weren't aspiring to be unique on this. We were just aspiring to, to keep up with where, where our business was headed. The other context that's important is we were this interesting startup big company melting pot because YouTube was purchased by Google. And so we had a lot of rituals that came from Google that we either de facto adopted or, you know, in some cases were pushed to adopt. But we had our own distinct culture and challenges. We had enough freedom to be able to do do things our, our way as well. So in some cases, we made choices that were very close to what Google did. In some cases, we didn't. And the other piece of context on this is relative to many other businesses, I think we were a particularly intertwined business. And I, there are other businesses that are intertwined as well. 
code is a fairly intertwined business as as well. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, some businesses have very natural separations, and you know, I'm always jealous of friends who are leaders at Amazon. I think Amazon uh, has much more of a separation model for how they do organization planning. And they set up teams and give them a lot of autonomy. For YouTube, that was very hard to do because we had a three-sided marketplace. You know, viewers, creators, and advertisers. And almost every change we made rippled through all of them. And then when we did something for viewers, it had a positive effect for creators and then a different effect for advertisers. And it was pretty common that, you know, initiatives we need to accomplish had to be coordinated across, you know, not only engineers and product managers, but, you know, our content team, our marketing team, the, the press relations team, the lawyers, you know, everybody had to be uh, part of it. And so actually sort of similar time to when we set this billion hour goal, was we, we sort of reset our cadence for how we did planning. And, you know, there were a few symptoms of that. You know, one, one was it felt like we were always planning and replanning. You know, when people say, hey, we'll just iterate really quickly, sometimes that feels amazing. Sometimes that feels like you're constantly re-questioning the same question over and over again. And that, that actually doesn't feel that good. Like every team, we were struggling with the balance of being too top down or too bottoms up. At that point, when I joined YouTube, we were you know about 100 people. At this point, we were a few thousand, and that caused lots of pressure on systems about going too top down or too bottoms up. Um, there were a lot of decision making criteria that weren't that clear. So there's a lot of these symptoms that led to why don't we think about doing this a little bit differently? And we arrived at the system that internally got referred to as the six week, 26 week system. Nowadays, I think people think about six weeks, six months. And basically, the way to think about it was my, micro planning, macro planning. Every six months, we would define a broad arc of what we were focused on. The term we used to describe it was big rocks. You can talk more about big rocks in a moment, uh, if you like. And that was pretty heavy debate. We went through every team. Every team presented their ideas and plans. We spent 10 bottoms up and tops down. We had people uh, do these write-ups, call them two-pagers. We did a set of exercises around choosing our priorities. We call the, the $100 voting. Uh, and that would produce a list of big rocks. And then uh, most of our cadence would run on a six-week cycle. And so we would we would see much, much shorter planning cycles on every six weeks. This was very different than how Google operated. So Google mostly operated on a quarterly OKR system, which a lot, a lot of companies do, where every, every 13 weeks you would get together and you'd set your goals for the next 13 weeks. And this was different from that in, in two ways. One, we split it. So it became six weeks, 26 weeks instead of 13. Uh, and that was mostly 13 weeks felt very awkward to us. The pace we were moving, it was way too long on one side because the world changed every 13 weeks for us. Uh, and on the other hand, it was way too short for the really big arcs for what we needed to get done. You know, billion hour goal or, or are we going to enter the music subscription market or are we going to do something for kids? Like those were all bets that you had to make, you know, um, often multi-year investments into. There was another big difference was there was a implicit rule that you did what was called 70% OKRs. The goal was to get to a 70% score. And that was originally constructed as a way to force ambition, like make sure you're shooting high enough. In practice, what it led to was you couldn't use OKRs for coordination. In this interconnected team, when you had this 70% rule, people would say, hey, I need your team to do this. And then they would say, yeah, sure, maybe we'll do it. And what they'd really be thinking is, well, I kind of needed to pad my 70% with something else. I'll put your ask into the 30%. Maybe I'll get to it, maybe not. I mean, people didn't do it maliciously, um, but it made it very hard to rely on teams. So what we ended up doing was the six-month process was very aspirational. And you would say, these, these are the big rocks, and you'd set fairly high-level goals. 
But the six-week process was committed. This was in a six-week window, you should be able to tell exactly what was going to happen. So that, that was sort of how the process worked. I mean, back to your question on is three weeks a lot or a little. I have a simple rule of thumb for, for planning timelines. I call it the 10% rule, which is your planning timeline should be no longer than 10% of the time you're planning for. So if you're going to plan for six months, what, what is six months is 26 weeks, then you can uh, do 2.6 weeks of planning. If you're going to plan for six weeks, you know, six weeks is 42 days, you can do 4.2 days of planning. And you have to adjust your process to be able to do that. So interestingly, at Google, not only was planning much more frequent every 13 weeks, it was also much longer. Turned out it was been six weeks of the 13 weeks planning because, you know, you had to, you had to go around, you had to talk to all the different teams. And then there was a set of reviews and you went up the org and down the org. And so actually compressing the three was very hard, but that was the, that was the way we did it. So, you know, every six weeks, you do a very short planning cycle, just a few days and you kind of get back to work. And then every six months, we would do this three-week process, which was intense, but actually in the bigger arc of things was perceived to be almost always too fast, not too slow. Now, sure, if people are looking for the one best process, right? Mm-hmm. They want to see something that works. And, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, look at the Google OKR process and they're like, you know what, this has got to be it. And then you, know, you said, no, you adjusted that for your company. So it seems like there isn't just one best process. So for product leaders and executives that are thinking about what process do we set up for our company? What is the discovery process that they go to, to figure out, Hey, what's the best process for them? Because people want to know, Hey, I want to follow the best process. I think, and it's, it's worth noting the way we ran YouTube. Uh, there's a lot of those, a lot of those techniques that we we brought with us to Coda, but many of them made no sense, and and we've adjusted the process here. So even from you know my last company to this one, I didn't follow the same process. I, I don't think there is just one exact process. That said, there's a fairly small list of, of processes, and when you go compare between companies, you'll you'll see differences. This is actually my project for the year. I'm working on a project called Rituals of Great Teams. And it started, uh, you know, actually with a podcast. I did a podcast just like this about a year ago. I did it with uh, Reed Hoffman on Masters of Scale. It's super interesting how they do their podcast. They record for a long time and then they cut out for Masters of Scale. They cut down from like three hours of recording to 30 minutes. And you have no idea what they're going to, what, what the title is going to be. And they ended up focusing in on this quote that I thought was really interesting from a guy named Bing Gordon. And for, for your listeners, they don't know Bing. Bing's a pretty famous investor now in the Valley but he's one of the founders of EA. He's you know major investor and co-founder in Zynga, and and he sits on the board of Amazon and sort of this iconic uh, leader. I've had the, I've had the pleasure of sitting on a couple boards with him as well. And he has this phrase that I really like. And Bing's phrase is: every company has a small list of golden rituals, and there are three criteria of your golden rituals. Number one, they're named. Number two, every employee knows them by their first Friday. And number three, they are templated. These are the three rules for, for golden rituals named, you know, Google OKRs is a very common example. Amazon six pagers is a very well-known example. The Salesforce has a thing they call V2 mom. It's also a very common example. You know, at Coda, you know, if you take the last group of employees that started, you know, this Monday and ask them today, today's Friday as we're recording, the, if you ask them today, they would probably talk about a thing we do called Dory Pulse. It's a pretty simple idea, but basically the way we run meetings, we generally have two tools. Actually, the way we run any document, uh, we have these two tools. One's called Dory. You can hit do it in Coda by hitting slash Dory and you'll get one. And it kind of looks like a, a voting Q&A tool. So everybody adds their questions and then you can vote them up and down. And it has this interesting impact of all of a sudden, instead of 
everyone sort of screaming out their questions in a meeting or trying to trying to get their word in edgewise, you you get this organized discussion, but you also greatly uh, equalize your your team. Now, you know, the CEO's questions and everybody else's questions are ranked right next to each other. You also run much more organized meetings. You leave the meeting saying, hey, we didn't get to get through everything, but we got through everything with at least three upvotes. It's pretty good. We also do a thing called Pulse, where similarly, you can hit slash Pulse in the code doc and you'll get you'll get one of these. We often refer to it as a sentiment tool. So the way it works is you have a question, you say, you know, should we set this billion hour goal? And everybody will privately answer the question. And then you check a little box and it shows everybody else's responses as well. And the main goal of that is to avoid groupthink. And so I'm sure everybody's been in a meeting where you say, should we set this goal? And you go around the room and the first person says yes. And the second person says yes. And the third person has no choice but to say yes. And that, that's the, the, the way it operates. So Dory Pulse is our golden ritual. One thing to note about it is it's a very efficient mechanism. It, it not only makes our meetings go a lot faster and be more productive, and many times it allows us to operate asynchronously because you can actually run that process without getting together. But probably more importantly than being efficient is it's a iconic of our culture. And this set of rituals, if you ask those same first week employees to describe the company, they'll probably talk about Coda is a dramatically more open and inclusive company than many others. And, you know, we use a phrase that great ideas can come from anywhere. And you know, employees will get that feeling at Coda very quickly. And so one of the things I'd say about picking these rituals is, is there one best one? Absolutely not. There is a list. And the little things you do to make it yours actually define your company. And it's interesting how much, you know, if you think back, I would like ask people what, what Google is known for, and they'll talk about OKRs. And the impacts of that strategy and what it did to the company and the way that Larry and Sergey would push people on their goals. And it led to a lot of innovation at the company. Or, you know, you think about the way Amazon operates and people will often talk about, you know, a very thoughtful, write it down culture. It's a sort of key part of how they actually work through problems together and yeah, use a mechanism that they sometimes refer to as working backwards. Do this write up and they write the press release and they kind of, they work backwards from what the customer's end goal is. It's a very meaningful process. That's very efficient and effective, but also endemic and representative of their cultural values. And so, you know, the main guidance I'd give is you can pick up lots of these different techniques, but recognize that it'll have much more than just an efficiency uh, value. And one of the projects I'm working on right now is called Rituals of Great Teams. By the way, if any of your listeners want to participate, uh, they should feel free to email me. I'm easy to find to share at Coder.io, or you can you can DM me on oh, Twitter or any of the other the other tools. And I've been collecting up rituals from. Right now, I'm at about 100 different teams and how they operate. And so the, the doc we published on YouTube was actually meant as a little bit of a trial balloon for this effort. Let's see what the level of interest is in this topic. But I'm taking those. And one of the things I'm trying to do is just sort of compare them and say, this is what a team that optimized for inclusion, what did they do? This is a team that optimized for speed. What do they do? What do teams that are smaller do versus teams that are larger? What are teams that are distributed versus teams that are not? we're sort of collecting up all these different rituals. And that's been super fun exercise. So it's kind of like writing a book, actually. That's amazing. So look forward to participating in that. Next, moving on to the theme of product discovery and decision-making. You you have an interesting thing that you've written about is, you know, you have an interesting concept of eigenquestions. Can you share what you mean by that and why that's important? Yeah, this is, it's a fun story. And eigenquestions, by the way, is a made up word. I'll tell you a little bit more about the inspiration behind it, but it's the sort of core tool for uh, how I think about decision-making. The sort of formative story for this method came actually from the early YouTube days. When I joined YouTube, one of the main questions that we were facing 
was often referred to as the modern family question. And the question was, people would come to, to YouTube and they would search for modern family. Uh, modern family was the most popular sh show on television at the time. And they would get a bunch of pretty mediocre results. We didn't have modern family on, on YouTube. So the debate was, what, how do we answer the modern family query? And when people ask that, what should we do? And remember, as context, YouTube was the world's second biggest search engine, second only to our parent company, Google. You know, the way that operated, there was a lot of discussion about what should the world's second biggest search engine do when people ask this, this question. The team basically divided into two camps. So one camp was the do right by the user camp. And their, their view was, look, we don't have a good answer to that question. We should go and link off to abc.com where they're hosting all the episodes of Modern Family. And we should just help people find it. And, you know, if they, if they find it on our property, that's great. And if not, we should uh, send people elsewhere. The other half of the company thought that was a really dumb idea. The sales team, the marketing team, the content team said, look, if you start linking off these other properties, nobody's ever going to host their content on, on YouTube. That's going to be really bad. And we were kind of paralyzed. I mean, this is actually... It seemed like a small decision, but it was actually kind of formative for every everything we did was, are we a search engine? Are we, are we a content repository? And lots and lots of debate about it kind of went nowhere. And then we we held this offsite in Half Moon Bay just to sort of answer this question. And I, I was asked the night before to come up with some way to run the discussion. And so the night before I'm going through and I'm thinking about, okay, how do we have this discussion that is like so charged and so you know sort of good versus evil and very accusatory and labeled and I said, well, we have to somehow change the frame for this discussion. So I went searching for, is there a different way to think about this problem? And at the time, one of the other debates happening at the company was the Google shopping team. The Google shopping team was actually, it was the start of the name Frugal. And it was in deep competition with Amazon. And one of the debates that was happening was Amazon was kicking Google shopping butt. And, you know, obviously this is now we're 13 years later. That's, it's more obvious how that played out. But even at that time, Amazon was, was kicking Google's butt and nobody could quite understand why. I mean, it seemed crazy because most of the ethos at Google, you know, focused on comprehensiveness first. And, you know, if you were a user and you had a choice to search on Amazon and get a set of Amazon products or come to Google and get everything you know, Google had indexed, everything that Amazon had and the entire internet. Why would you ever search on Amazon? Why not go to Google and search across the whole internet, including all of Amazon? And what users would regularly tell us is, yeah, that's true, but I really like the consistency of the experience on Amazon. I, I know how the site works. I know how the reviews work. I know I can trust the pricing. I know I understand the shipping. I understand how the returns work. And you know, I'll probably sacrifice a little bit of catalog for a consistent experience. And so this was uh, known by the Google Shopping team as a debate about consistency versus comprehensiveness. And so as we, we went to Half Moon Bay to have this discussion, about the modern family question for YouTube, we decided to use the same frame, consistency versus comprehensiveness. And then we had a real debate because now you can have a reasonable way to think about, yeah, which way is the video market gonna be? Is it gonna be more about comprehensiveness? In which case we should absolutely link out and probably the future that it's gonna be a video search engine. Uh, or should we focus on consistency? In which case we probably shouldn't link out and we should live with a smaller catalog but a more consistent experience. Lots and lots of debate, and we decided and committed we're going to value consistency over comprehensiveness. In fact, we ended up writing 10 rules for YouTube, and this was one of the first ones was we value consistency over comprehensiveness. And it turned out that that rule not only answered the question of what we should do with Modern Family, it answered dozens of other questions too. For example, 
At the time, we also had a bunch of cases where people are hosting content on YouTube, but they were embedding their own player, often these kind of buggy flash players, very inconsistent experiences. And we stopped that all together. So we're, we're, not, we're not accepting content that way anymore. Um, probably the most famous example is the way our app on the iPhone worked. And so the YouTube app on the iPhone, people may not realize this, but was actually written by Apple. Is when, when the iPhone came out, there was no store. And so the, the only way to get an app onto the iPhone was if Apple wrote it. And YouTube was already a pretty popular property. And so they had gotten our permission to write the app and they were still writing the app, but they had fallen way behind. And it was hard to keep up with what we were doing. And so almost half the catalog didn't even play back on, on an iPhone. And so drove down to Cupertino and went and talked to the Apple leadership and said, hey, we'd like to take back development of this app. And they said, realize if you take back development of the app, we can't default install it anymore. We have a policy that says we can only default install ones that we built. And we said, well, okay, I guess that is what it is. And they said, really? You would sacrifice distribution to what was by far the most popular operating system on the planet at the time. You would sacrifice distribution on that in order to just uh, have more control? And I said, no, that's not quite how we think about it. We think it is more important to have a consistent experience than a comprehensive experience. And so, yes, we'll take, we'll take less wide distribution in order to have a more consistent experience. And so this was one of the earliest examples of this eigenquestion methodology. Eigenquestion is a term that's, a, that's derived from linear algebra. In linear algebra, there's a concept called eigenvectors and eigenvalues. Eigenvectors are the most discriminating vectors in a multidimensional space. In a multidimensional space, what are the vectors that most describe how, how the space is oriented? It's a technique very commonly used in machine learning. It's called principal component analysis. It uses a very similar technique. That's where we borrowed the term from. The math is irrelevant. The name it can be considered to be made up. The way to think about an eigen question is when you have a list of different questions to consider, it's the question that if you answer, it answers all the other questions. So that's the, the eigen question, the most discriminating question of the question set. And it often is not the most obvious one. I mean, this question of consistent versus comprehensiveness started with, should we link out for the modern family query? I mean, literally, there was a question of, what about that one query? Should we link out? <laughs> and it turned out that if we answer that question, we answer the question about whether or not we should own our iPhone app or not. And it, it wasn't obvious to people why those connected together. And this has become one of the key tools I use for decision making is trying to make sure before we get to the answers, are we asking the right question? And that's that's what eigen questions are about. In reading your writing, you talked about the importance of spending enough time making sure that you are asking the right questions, which I thought was was incredibly powerful. So we are at time, and on behalf of all the product executive product leaders and all the nerds that are into process. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to share what you've shared with us today. I highly encourage the audience to literally nerd out on coda.io because the material there is amazing. And you know it's really transformational. There's a term out there that I follow and I find is that, look, process doesn't sound sexy, but strong processes, strong rituals lead to better outcomes. It is your responsibility as a product leader to assess your processes and continuously make them better. I think Coda is a fantastic uh, tool for that. So thank you so much, Shashir, for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and check us out at productfaculty.com, where we offer the number one ranked product management course for experienced product managers, product leaders, and product executives. Thank you.